Good day and welcome to Eyewitness Good News, the first name in good news coverage. Today is a great day as we continue our in-depth coverage on the life of the recently deceased Jesus of Nazareth, who some claims the promised Messiah, even the Son of God. You've heard the buzz, you've heard all the rumors, and it's time to get the facts. Luke, the physician, has a reputation for carefully researched reporting, and this promises to be no exception. He has read the written accounts, traveled to the original locations, and interviewed eyewitnesses. And now that his careful investigation is over, he is ready to share his orderly account with all our viewers. For the details of his research, please find a copy of his excellent book. But for now, we will send you over to the field for today's top story. Thanks again to Luke for his excellent research, and thank you for tuning in. As always, this is Josh Smith for Eyewitness Good News. Well, good morning, friends. Uh, that was the last time we're going to get to hear Josh Smith invite us to uh, dive into the Gospel of Luke. Uh, I hope you've been enjoying this series. It has been good for me just to go back to the text and remember what we have when, when the Gospel of Luke. We have the skeptic's guide to Jesus. Uh, the one who wanted to ask the questions and get the answers and figure out what could he could verify about the life of Jesus so that we would know. And I hope that's the experience you've had. I hope maybe you've been reading along week by week. If you haven't, remember our goal was to every one of us read the Gospel of Luke by Easter. You can still do it. That's two weeks away. It'll take you two hours tops. You can do it. Let's all read the Gospel of Luke by Easter. Speaking of Easter, thanks to Adam for bringing us all up to speed. It's here in two weeks. Who are you going to invite? This is your gospel challenge. When are you going to attend? Here are the times right there on the screen. Uh, remember, it, those of you who want to attend like a missionary, like if you're like, I want to just show up for church in a way that makes me like a missionary, come on Saturday or come with somebody. That's how to do it. If you can, also park like a missionary. Uh, this is true for almost every Sunday morning, really, these days. We're running out of parking. I know you 815 people don't notice because you get here. There's plenty of parking. But trust me, um, we're out of parking uh, in about 45 minutes. We'll be out of parking. So if you get here early and you got the time and you want to get your steps in, park far away and walk. And especially on Easter, that'll be great. Uh, love to have you be a part of that. Uh, so much wonderful stuff going on. Uh, last week, uh, the worship night was amazing. The prayer night, it was so good. We're going to do that again soon. So if you missed it, you don't want to miss the next one. It was such a really beautiful uh, time. Um, and then tonight, we've got another kind of night of worship, an event here. Uh, and again, as Nathan said, the rule is Mike names them, I have to say them. Awesome acapella and antipasti in the atrium. Uh, so that's 6 p.m. tonight. It's going to be great. I'm going to be there looking forward to, uh, as Nathan said, adult-sized Lunchables. I love that description. Uh, that's, that, that's got it right there. Um, but right now. Let's jump in to the Gospel of Luke. We're working our way through three chapters at a time. And next week, we're going to kind of, it'll be different next week. Next week, we're going to look at the Gospel of Luke, though, uh, but at the, at the whole last week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. So that'll be like 19, 20, 21, 22, and 23, a whole bunch of the book next week. And, and so this week, we're just going to look at, at one chapter from our chunk this week, 19, 20, and 21, just one chapter. Uh, we're going to look at Luke chapter 21. Uh, 
And Luke 21, uh, you can start turning there now if you want to, it might be the weirdest chapter in the Gospel of Luke. Um, it's a rarely taught text. I don't hear a lot of sermons on it. Uh, it's a rarely read text. Um, it, it, it's weird. I'll just, I'll warn you up front. It's just a weird chunk of uh, Scripture. Uh, we're going to need clear minds today. And we're going to need a little bit of humility to kind of navigate this complicated text. Uh, We have a phrase around here that we love that will help us today. We say this, where the Bible speaks, we speak. And where the Bible is silent, we are silent. What this means is that everything the Bible clearly says, we're going to say. But what the Bible, when the Bible doesn't tell us everything we might wish it did, well, then we're not going to pretend that it does. We're not going to say more than Scripture does. And today we're actually going to need my favorite addition to this phrase. Uh, where the Bible speaks, we speak. Yep. Where the Bible is silent, we're silent. Yep. But where the Bible is confusing, we're going to be confused. And I know that sounds so silly to say, but I'm telling you, um, what, 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 there's a temptation to come to a confusing text of Scripture and refuse to admit that it's confusing. Like people do this, they'll come to a confusing text of scripture and be like, oh, well, what that really means is, and anybody who doesn't agree with me that it means this is a bad person because it's obvious that it means, it's like, no, it's not obvious. It's super confusing. And, And part of what it means to actually speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent is to be confused where the Bible is confusing. And, and that could be relevant today. I'm just warning you that that last bit about the Bible being confusing could be relevant when we read uh, Luke chapter 21. Um, uh, when people write about uh, the Gospels and including the Gospel of Luke, they often call Luke 21 the little apocalypse. That's kind of the name uh, that Luke 21 gets called. Um, It's not the only little apocalypse. There are parallel texts in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 13, and the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew Matthew chapter 24. Um, They they cover very similar content. Clearly, this is something Jesus taught regularly, this sort of little apocalypse. Uh, You might recognize the word apocalypse. This is the word for like uh, the book of Revelation or the book of Daniel. These, 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 These sections of the Bible that talk about the end of the world. You know, they're, they're these kind of texts. And we get excited about apocalyptic texts. Uh, we do. Uh, we, we sort of like to, we write books about them and we write, uh, we kind of discuss them and argue about them, you know, Revelation, Daniel, Ezekiel, things like that, you know. I mean, and I get it, right? The end of the world, that's kind of interesting, right? We, we sort of want to know. Uh, but I've observed something. In our excitement about these apocalyptic texts, I often hear people, otherwise level-headed people, say stuff that just ain't so. Here's what I hear. Uh, If I can describe the rumor on the street about apocalyptic texts in Scripture, I hear people say things like this. We know lots of details, and we should be very afraid. Like somebody said, you know, I watched a video on YouTube about Revelation and they told us exactly what was going to happen, that the Bible predicts exactly what was going to happen. And the, the Bible predicted that thing that the Russians just did. And the Bible predicted what just happened in Israel last week. All this stuff the Bible predicted. And oh my goodness, it's super scary. Oh my goodness, what happens? This, you hear this all the time. 
from otherwise level-headed Christians, otherwise level-headed interpreters of Scripture, when it comes to apocalyptic texts, this is what they say. They say, we know lots of details, and we should be very afraid. I'll tell you one detail in particular that people sometimes claim they know is they know when the end of the world is going to happen, right? Again, I'm telling you, otherwise level-headed teachers, otherwise level-headed people, when it comes to these apocalyptic texts, all of a sudden they know details. Uh, and this happens all the time throughout history. You can, you can study the history of the church, and in every, every 10 years, there'll be some teacher that rises to prominence because of their specific detailed predictions about the ends of the world. I've mentioned from this stage, one of my favorite examples, there was a guy in the 80s who published a best-selling book. It sold millions of copies, and only Christians would have bought this book. The book that he published in 1988 was entitled 88 Reasons That Jesus Will Return in 1988. In case you're wondering, that didn't happen. Um, It sold millions of copies. What do you do if you're a preacher and you sell a book, you sell millions of copies of a book entitled 88 Reasons That Jesus Will Return in 1988 and then you're wrong. He doesn't return. What do you do? Well, you retire from ministry in great shame and embarrassment and you never do anything in public ever again because you're so ashamed of yourself. No, that's not what he did. The next year, he published a book entitled 89 Reasons That Jesus Will Return in 1989 and it also sold millions of copies. This is unbelievable to me. But this is the rumor. That because of these apocalyptic texts, we know lots of details about this or that and that event and over there and when it'll happen. And that we should be very afraid of the end of the world. In case you're curious, right up front, let's establish this. The Bible teaches exactly the opposite of those two conclusions. We are given very few details and we have nothing to fear. In fact, if, you, like, if, if you're like easily distracted and you don't want to pay attention to the rest of this message and you don't really want to read the Gospel of Luke with me today, you could just remember that. We don't know all that much about the end of the world, but we have nothing to fear. And you can just go about your day. We don't know that much. We know a little. We'll talk about what we know. But it's not that much. And we have nothing to fear. So, if apocalyptic texts don't give us details and don't make us scared, what do they do? Well, they teach us the kind of stuff that's going to happen. Not the details, but the kind of stuff that will happen. They teach us how to react when that kind of stuff happens. And they teach us how it will all end. So, with these expectations, not details and dates, but the kind of thing that will happen, how we should react to it, and how it all will end, with these expectations, uh, let's jump into this, undoubtedly, weirdest chapter in the Gospel of Luke. Maybe you're there by now. Luke chapter 21. We'll be starting in verse 5. 
It starts with a very specific prediction. We get details. In the very beginning, we do, in fact, get details. So all those who wanted details, you're going to be super excited. But they aren't details about the end of the world. They're details about something that has already happened. So it, you know, it hadn't happened when Jesus made it, the prophecy, but it's happened now. So there you go. All right. Luke chapter 21, verse 5. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones, with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the temple, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. He starts with details. And they're pretty excited about this, like, oh, great, this is detail time. So they ask a detailed question in response. Teacher, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? Now, Jesus is talking here about something that has already happened from our perspective. The temple was, in fact, destroyed in around the year 70, and it was, in fact, leveled so severely that basically not one stone still sat on another. But when they respond to his detailed prediction with a detailed question, when is it going to happen, and how are we going to know it's about to happen? He shifts their attention away from the details, as all apocalyptic texts do, they always shift us away from the details toward a general truth, toward not exactly what will happen, but toward the kind of things that will happen. Here's what he says. Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name claiming I am he The time is near. We can testify to that. That has happened in our age. Some of you remember 2012, right? The guy put the billboards everywhere. October 2012, Jesus is coming back. And again, millions of people quit their jobs, sold their houses so they could be ready for Jesus to come back. Here Jesus says it. Many are going to come saying the time is near. Do not Follow them. It's a good hint for how you can figure out a preacher to start paying less attention to. If some preacher says that they've figured out the code of the Bible, they finally cracked it, or they're watching some current event, and they're the ones who finally know, oh, now the time is finally near. Jesus says here, do not follow them. That's a pretty clear text. When you hear wars and uprisings, don't be frightened. This stuff happens. But the end will not come right away. Jesus says, this kind of stuff, political turmoil, it happens. But that's not a particular sign of the end of all things. And like I say, unfortunately, many Bible teachers throughout history have ignored this very specific instruction. He goes on. He's going to tell us more about the kind of stuff that happens. He says nations are going to rise against nations, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes, famines, pestilence in various places, fearful events, and great signs from heaven. He's like, yeah, this stuff just happens. This is the way human history unfolds. And we can look back on 2,000 years of it and be like, oh, yeah, he was exactly right. That, that stuff did just, just keep happening. There was always something happening. 
He goes on. Here's, he's going to make it personal. Here's, here's the other kind of stuff that happens. Before all this, they'll seize you and persecute you. They'll hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. You'll be brought before kings and governors, all on account of my name. You will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will ever be able to resist or contradict. You'll be betrayed by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives, friends. Some of you will be put to death. Now, for a lot of us, that specific thing hasn't been our personal experience, that personal persecution. And so maybe you think to yourself, well, that doesn't just happen. You know, that's gonna happen when it gets... Re- no. In every age, in every era, there have been Christians living through that exact experience Jesus just described. Being brought on trial for their faith, being thrown in prison for their faith, being abandoned by their parents for their faith. It certainly happened in the days that followed Jesus, in the time of Paul, in the early, the first hundred years of the church. It happened all the time. And ever since then, there has never been a Never been a decade when there weren't Christians somewhere being imprisoned, persecuted, killed, abandoned, and rejected for their faith. He says, this is just the kind of thing that happens. And it's going to keep happening. He goes on, everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. Do you see what we found? In contrary to the the videos on YouTube and all the stuff where they say, I have the details, you better be afraid. Jesus says, I'm not actually going to give you very many details. But you have nothing to fear. I'm not going to give you very many details. And it actually, it, it could be really bad. But you have nothing to fear. Not a hair on your head will perish Stand firm and you will win life. And now he does turn, Jesus is going to turn now and talk about two specific events. So far, like I said, we don't get many details. That doesn't mean we don't get any details. We just don't get many. And now Jesus is going to talk about two specific events. The first is the one he's already mentioned, the destruction of the temple. And the second is the one that probably interests us when we think about the apocalypse, and that is the return of Jesus. Here's what he says, verse 20. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that's been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There'll be great distress in the land of the wrath against this people. They'll fall by the sword, will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. It says, when it happens... You'll know it's happened. And this is his prophecy about the destruction of temple that that happened around A.D. 70. And it was brutal. And nobody had to wonder if it was happening. You didn't need some preacher to say, this is it. Finally, it's arrived. No, you didn't need a preacher because the Roman armies were marching through the streets, tearing the temple down. Like everybody knew it had happened. It didn't take some special secret interpretation to know the temple was being destroyed. 
He then shifts his attention to another thing he wants them to know is going to happen, and that is his return. He says, there'll be signs in the sun, moon, and stars on the earth. Nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming to the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. How will we be able to predict the second coming of Christ? We will look up in the sky and see him. That's it. That's what he says. When this happens, oh yeah, it's super close. You should definitely be, yeah, we're getting close then. You think? Yeah, I think we're getting close then. Notice what he does. When he speaks in generalities, he says this stuff is always going to be happening. So always be ready for this. When he speaks in specifics, he says you will be unable to miss it. You won't be able to not notice that the temple has been knocked down. You won't be able to not notice that I have arrived in power and glory. He he doubles down on this teaching. He gives them a little parable to help reinforce the obviousness of the activity of God. Here's what he says. He told them this parable. I'm in verse 29. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourself and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. How do you know that summer has come? Well, hire some meteorological botanical expert and they'll run all their complicated tests. No! If you see leaves on the trees, it's summer. This is Jesus' secret plan. How can you tell it's winter? No leaves on the trees, winter. Brown leaves on the trees, fall. Little buds, spring. Leaves, summer. Like, you got that figured out? Like, you understand seasons? Now, this is his parable. He says, just look at the tree. You all know how to figure out when it's summer. If there are leaves on a fig tree, it's summer. He says that, he's, he's, look, look at this, verse 30. He says, you can see for yourselves. You don't need a secret code book. You don't need, you know, I, I was thinking about, I could write 23 reasons that Jesus will come back in 2023. That's not nearly as long as 89 reasons. Like I, I was born in, I could do that. I could get a career out of that, right? Only 23. What's his name? Had to come up with 88 reasons. That would be, that'd be a long book. He says, no, you don't need a secret code book. See for yourselves, leaves on the trees, it's summer. Even so, when you see this stuff happen, you'll know the kingdom of God is near. This is what's true about the destruction of the temple, he says. This is what's true about the return of Christ. When it happens, it will be so obvious that it won't take some mischievous preacher to help you read the signs of the times, you know. For only a $50 donation on my website, you can have my book that'll help you know that we're living in the end times. Yes, of course we're living in the end times. We've been living in the end times since Jesus ascended. So we are still living in the end times. But 
until it happens with the level of obviousness that Jesus describes, we should not expect to be able to distinguish between just the regular old strife of the world and the strife that is right before the end. They'll look the same until it's so obvious that we'll know. Now, then Jesus does briefly return to the specific question they asked. When does the temple come tumbling down? Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away. Well, that's relatively detailed. That's about as detailed as Jesus ever gets. Soon, right? This generation will not pass away until these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And of course, he was right. Within a generation, the temple was destroyed. But then he gives them some general advice. General advice for a general prediction about us generally knowing what's generally going to happen. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing drunkenness and the anxieties of life, and that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. Again, just, I know I'm, I'm kind of pounding this point home, but I want to protect you against so much. I'm just always amazed how easily Christians are confused. You see that? It will close like a trap. If we could predict that it was coming, it wouldn't be suddenly like a trap. You see what I'm saying? Be careful, or your heart will be weighed down, for it will come on those, all those who live on the face of the whole world. So be, what should we do? Verse 36, be always on your watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand. There's that word stand. That showed up earlier. Pray that you would be able to stand. But what did he say? Just a few verses back. Just look up there. Look up. What did he say about standing? He said, not a hair in your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. Not very many details. Nothing to fear. Not very many details. Nothing to fear. The only one who needs fear, the end of this world, is the one who has attached themselves to it. I mean, we can't, we, I guess we probably should be blunt about that. We should be clear about that. The only one who needs to fear the end of the world is the one who has attached themselves to it. For the one who has made this world their home, for the one who has made this world their peace, for the one who has made this world their anchor, for the one who has made this world their hope, well, yes, for that one, the end of the world is terrifying. But... For the one who has made Christ their home and Christ their anchor and Christ their peace and Christ their hope, there's nothing to fear. For this world will pass away, but his words will not. They will stand. Stand firm. On what? Not on this world. The world will pass away. The world will be shaken. Stand firm on Christ. So they asked him a detailed question. But they didn't get a very detailed answer. When's it going to happen, Jesus? Well, soon. Yeah, soon. Yeah. What should we do, Jesus? Stay focused on me. Stay on watch. Stay expectant. 
But don't listen to anybody who says they've got some special trick for figuring out when I'm coming back. And all that's still true. If you want to know when the end of the world will be, I actually do know. I'm glad you came today. It'll be soon. Yeah, it'll be soon. Yeah, 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 that's what we figured out. We studied the code. We translated it into several languages. Yeah, it'll be soon. It's always soon. Jesus could return at any time. Wouldn't it be nice if we knew more? We don't. We don't. You want to tell me about the thing you read in the newspaper yesterday and doesn't that prove? No, it doesn't. There will be always wars and rumors of wars. This is what he says. It'd be nice if we knew more, but we don't. Until it is utterly obvious and everybody knows, nobody knows. Hear that again. Until everybody knows, nobody knows. It'll just be soon. How will it end? We know that. Oh, not the details, of course. But we know that the king will be victorious. The king will reestablish his reign. And he will reign forever. And those who are citizens of the kingdom will reign with him. So what should we do? We should stay ready. We should stay unattached to the world because the world is passing away. We should stay focused on Christ. And this is my favorite one. We should fear nothing. Let's pray. God, you know I wish I knew a little more about what was going to happen. You know I do. I'm a detailed guy. I'd like to know the whole plan. But today I can see that it is enough to know that it's your plan and it's a good plan And it's a plan that you will accomplish by the power of Jesus Christ for your glory and that when I trust in you, I get to be a part of it. And for that, I will just praise you and rejoice. Thank you for Jesus. We put our hope in him, not in timelines or details that we don't have. We put our hope in Jesus. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.